Hello, and welcome to another installment of The Weird Chronicles. Each episode, we bring you tales of action and adventure, from Malifaux and the other side. Crime is pervasive in Malifaux, and criminals often prey upon vulnerable people. All too often, the authorities do nothing to solve these cases. But a few dedicated professionals work tirelessly to catch killers. Some employ old-fashioned sleuthing techniques. Others use more occult means. I hope you enjoy Heart of Stone. Heart of Stone by Anthony Hicks The woman was dead. That much was apparent. Her bulging eyes, protruding black tongue, Grey lips and blue-tinged skin suggested she had not gone well, or peacefully. Guild Sergeant Hiram Moore let out a long sigh and crouched down next to the body. He ran an appraising eye over the corpse and tutted to himself. The younger guardsman hovering at his shoulder stepped forward. Such a shame, he said. She was a pretty one, no doubt about that. Moore shot his companion a withering glance. That all you see, son. A pretty face. Sarge, if you actually bothered to look, you'd see the colour of her skin tells her she's been dead about eight hours. The bruising on her neck and face says she was strangled. No marks on her wrists, but some skin under her fingernails suggests she wasn't restrained, but fought back and probably got a piece of her attacker. Her clothes are flashy, maybe a bit too revealing to be proper, but too well made to be a streetwalker. A showgirl, then. The fact that this is the third such girl found in this area probably means we have a serial killer on the loose. But you just see a pretty face. The guardsman looked at his feet glumly. Sorry, Sarge, I didn't mean no harm. Maybe if you spent more time observing and less wagging your pointless tongue, you might learn something. Now do something useful and keep those gawkers away from my crime scene. The guardsman scuttled off, his face red. Moore stood up. A cold pit began to open in his stomach. There was more to this than just another psycho out to get his jollies by killing pretty girls. Sarge! called the guardsman. Moore turned to look at him, his eyes flashing with barely concealed anger. What? he demanded. You've got a visitor. A lithe figure slipped from the crowd of onlookers. She was tall and well-made with an athlete's build and an air of authority. Her uniform was standard guild crimson and grey, but her elegant greatsword and badge of office marked her as a witch-hunter. She smiled like a cat, exposing perfect white teeth. Hello, Hiram. The pit in his stomach became an abyss. Oh, hell, he said. There's that sunny disposition, always so eager to catch up with an old friend. Moore frowned. Why are you here, Kraus? Helena Kraus strode over the body, pulling off her gloves absently. Moore trembled, and he pushed the memory of his last encounter with her away. The witch-hunter began walking around the body, 
her ungloved hands making subtle shapes at her sides. Moore was certain she was muttering something, but he could not make it out. It was a curious sound, low and sibilant, like chalk on slate. It scratched at the periphery of his hearing, making him twitch. I asked you a question, he said. Helena lifted her eyes towards him, not ceasing her circular walk. Why, to help you, of course. This is the third murder in as many weeks, isn't it? All showgirls, all strangled. I thought you'd welcome the assist. Why does the Office of Witch Hunters seek to involve itself in a simple serial killer case? Run out of soul stones to count? Krauss stopped pacing and drew up next to Moore. She fixed him with a level stare. Can you not feel it, Tiram? She said. Does this not reek of something greater than simple murder? Intuition is not evidence, he replied. It seems that more than one of my lessons failed to sink in. Her predatory smile returned. It filled Moore's blood with black ice. Then I shall find you your evidence. The witch hunter raised her hand, motioning to someone behind Moore. A sudden hush fell over the crowd, swiftly replaced with concerned whispering and stifled yelps. Hiram turned in time to see the crowd break apart. Bodies scrambled to move aside as three stunted figures made their way towards the crime scene. Their uneven gait, hooded faces and misshapen limbs gave them a pitiable quality, but each was surrounded by an air of barely contained power. The lead stalker stared up at Moore as it passed him, its gleaming eye seeming to rifle through his thoughts and discard him once it found nothing of value therein. Moore suppressed a shiver. It was difficult for him to fathom that these things had once been human like him. At some unspoken command, the trio set about the crime scene. Each moved differently. One was of manic intensity, desperately examining every inch of the scene, pressing its awful face as close as it could before dashing onto the next morsel. The second was slower, more deliberate. It seemed to slide from one point of interest to another, its bandaged hands groping and slithering over everything. It swayed as if in ecstasy, gibbering to itself. The third barely moved, shuffling slowly around the edge of the scene. It turned its face upward and twitched from side to side, sniffing at the air as though trying to catch a scent it had lost. Finally, the three congregated near the body, each drawn to the same spot by their peculiar methods. One of the witchlings croaked out a word. Its voice was like the snapping of a log in a fire, burnt and crisp. Mistress! it said. Krauss turned on her heel, her long coat flaring out behind her, and strode across the alley. Behind her, Moore followed at a more sedate pace. The witchlings had discovered a scattering of odd grey powder. To Moore it had looked like dust, which this close to the industrial zone was nothing special, but Krauss was positively triumphant about the discovery. I told you there was work for me here she said with satisfaction. It's dust, Helena, replied Moore. Malifaux is a dusty city. 
although I expect you don't see much of that from the Enclave. If Moore's words had any effect on Krauss, she did not let it show. This is soulstone dust, my dear Hiram. Moore rubbed at his chin thoughtfully. Soulstone dust, eh? Are you saying she was killed by a miner? Unlikely. Most miners make at least some attempt to scrub up before coming into the city. What then? Smugglers? Arcanists? Krauss's condescending demeanor had fallen away, replaced by a concerned professionalism. Possibly, she said. I have some inquiries to make. Can I still reach you at the sword and pistol? Moore nodded. The revelation of a possible arcanist link in the case raised all sorts of unpleasant problems. He was a simple man. He did not hold any particular prejudices. But if anything in this world did upset him, it was magic, and this case had just gained a big helping of it. So, we're sharing intelligence on this one, then? Asked Moore. I'll tell you what I find out. You do likewise. Indeed, replied Krauss. Just like old times. For the briefest moment, Krauss's face softened, and Moore saw something of the person he had once known, and then it was gone. Yeah, said Moore, just like old times. The Star Theatre was a grand building. It stretched up from the street like a raised trumpet, blasting out its clarion call for all to come and witness its majesty. Its high arched windows and baroque embellishments were reminiscent of a European music hall, but its colonnaded porch and white marble steps would have been more at home at some ancient colosseum. Moore sat at a street-side cafe and watched for a while, content to soak up the ambience. Crowds of people bustled past, many stopping to inspect the playbill or join the never-ending lines at the ticket office. Even now, hours before curtain up, the theatre cast its enchantment on the populace of the city, beckoning them to its breast and promising a night like no other. He finished his drink, left his seat, and set off for the stage door. He knew the main entrance was locked up tight until well into the evening, and a guild sergeant banging on the door demanding entrance was in no one's interest. The stage door stood well away from the crowds and grandeur of the front entrance, down a poorly lit but otherwise clean alleyway. After a brief discussion, the elderly doorkeeper admitted him and showed him through into the backstage offices. The room was surprisingly plain and workmanlike. A heavy desk, some filing cabinets, a couple of chairs and pen and ink, all very humdrum. The only admission this was anything other than another typical business office was the elaborate feathered headdress mounted on a stand behind the desk chair. Moore was just admiring it when the office door opened. Close your mouth, dear. Her voice was honey-rich. It makes you look like a fish. Suddenly very aware, Moore snapped his mouth shut and tried to apologise. His tongue tripped over the words and he blurted out a sound that could only be described as a wheezing honk. The woman smiled, evidently used to such displays, and Moore felt the temperature in the room ratchet up another ten degrees. Take a seat, honey, she said. You look like you could take a load off. Moore composed himself, 
crossed to the far side of the desk and sat down. He fished inside his greatcoat and pulled out a notebook and pencil. His companion followed into the chair next to him. She crossed her legs languorously, and the long slash in her dress parted, exposing the smooth expanse of her thigh. Despite himself, Moore glanced down. Across from him, the woman's smile widened. Do you mind if I smoke? She asked. Hiram shook his head. He knew she was trying to distract him, to put him off balance with her appearance and coquettish behavior. He hated himself, but it was working. Was he as bad as that guardsman this morning? Delicately, she reached out toward him. Her fingertips brushed the tip of his ear, and she produced a cigarette, seemingly from thin air. She placed the cigarette between her lips and snapped her fingers. A spark flashed at its tip, and she drew a long, slow breath. Finally, she blew out a lazy curl of blue smoke that spiraled up and away into the office. Moore watched, enraptured. It was a childish trick, one that he had seen a thousand times, but he had to admit the effect was quite potent. Very bold to flaunt magic in front of the guild. Cassandra snorted. It's all just part of the show. Now then, Sergeant Moore, she said. What can I do for you? Smog, dust, and heat. Helena Krauss could sum up the industrial zone in those three words. She picked her way through the labyrinthine alleys and ginnels, her trio of witchling stalkers shuffling along in curious order behind her. The first two refineries had been busts. There'd been no real evidence of wrongdoing beyond the usual skimming. On another day, she could have spent hours pulling the places apart, exposing fugitives and non-guild-approved weights and measures. But today she had other quarry to seek out. She spied her destination, a sprawling mess of stained brick and belching chimneys. As she crossed the cobbled square in front of the processing plant, the workers stopped and stared, some recoiling in horror as her stalkers spread out behind her. They muttered curses and insults as she strode past them, not too loud as to draw attention, but loud enough she would hear. The workers bore the office of witch hunters little love. The processing plant door stood open, a massive portal of thick wood bound with heavy iron bands. Beyond, a cavernous chamber stretched away into the ever-present gloom. Giant machines of incomprehensible design roared away before her, all around her, the process of shaping, grinding, cutting, and refining soulstones played out. The air was thick with an odd yellow-brown steam, and motes of dust floated down everywhere like great black snowflakes. Her stalkers trembled. To be surrounded by such power was practically torture to them, and Helena whispered a silent thanks that her rituals held. Across the factory, a small office loomed over the production line, and Krauss strode off toward it. The sound in here was deafening, and most of the workers were too engrossed in their work to notice the witch hunter and her carder of stalkers, but she could still feel the occasional hostile stare as she passed by. A group of burly men lounged at the foot of the stairs leading to the office. They watched the approaching witch hunter with contempt. Unperturbed, Helena marched straight up to them. 
The shift foreman, she yelled over the din. Where is he? The foreman was almost certainly gilled. But from what she had seen thus far, Krauss would have been surprised if he wasn't also taking bribes from the union. The men mumbled and shrugged, and one of them cupped his hand to an ear pretending not to hear. Krauss gave a thin smile. Where is the shift foreman? I shan't ask nicely again. Her stalkers moved out from behind her, shambling up to the union men, their movements unsettlingly quiet. Almost to a man, the group shifted away from the macabre creations with looks of dismay and disgust. One fellow spoke, clearly braver than his companions. Why don't you take your filthy pets and get lost? Leave decent, hard-working folks alone. Nah, said Krauss. Now we're getting somewhere? What? Silence and ambivalence are always so difficult to deal with. But insults? Hostility? Rejection? These are tools I can work with. The man made to turn away. I don't know what you're talking about, love. Krause's left hand shot out, her knuckles driving deep into the man's solar plexus. He gasped in pain, one of his legs buckling. Kraus hooked her right hand across her praised throat, the fingers pinching into his windpipe. His companions moved to intervene. As one, Krause's stalkers drew their glowing rune swords, a warning hiss rumbling deep in their chests, and the men froze. Krause's victim clawed at her arms, trying to lever his greater size and strength against her. She kicked his feet out from under him, his fierce expression swiftly changing to one of desperation. She spun on her right foot, swinging the man around and slamming him into the foot of the stairs as he fell. His head clanged off the metal painfully. Krauss took a single step up, pressing her hand further into the man's neck. Now, she hissed into his face, shall we try that again? The man gurgled out a sound. Krauss cupped her free hand to her ear, mimicking his earlier gesture. Sorry, but I can't hear you. Do speak up. The man just coughed and sputtered. Krauss kicked him aside and made her way up the stairs. Can't be too hard to find, she mumbled. Another man tried to block her path, but she planted her heel in the side of his knee with a loud crack. He went down in pain, and nobody else tried to block her way. Krauss swept up the stairs, her witchlings forming a tight wedge behind her. The smoke ring floated for a second in front of Moore's face, before losing cohesion and drifting into nothing. If we could return to the question at hand, Miss Cassandra, he said, waving a hand at the smoke. The interview was becoming a chore. The woman across from him was clearly determined to never give him a straight answer. Her coy replies and blatant attempts at seduction were flattering at first, but Moore was losing patience. What was your question again? She asked. When was the last time you saw Miss Elaine Sutcliffe? She was, I'm led to believe, an employee here. Was? Sergeant, has something happened to Miss Sutcliffe? Moore sighed. If you could just answer the question, miss. Cassandra clucked her tongue and rolled her eyes exaggeratedly. I'm terribly sorry, Sergeant Moore, 
that we get such a high turnover of women here, I find it best to maintain a certain professional distance. I can keep track of every one of our performers. Are you sure she works here? Quite sure, replied Moore. If your professional distance keeps you so far from your charges, perhaps I would be better interviewing some of the other women. A look of supreme annoyance flashed across Cassandra's face. It lasted only a split second, but Moore caught it. Questions rose in his mind. He pushed them away momentarily as Cassandra rose to her feet. If you wish, Sergeant Moore, she said. Moore followed her out of the office and into the backstage area. They walked past piles of faded scenery and painted backdrops rolled into great fat tubes. Moore saw a row of faceless mannequins, all identically posed and dressed, and their perfect symmetry and blank faces raised the hairs on the back of his neck. Girls bustled past, so consumed by their tasks that they paid the sergeant very little heed. Cassandra spoke quietly with the women as they passed, calling each by name. She offered encouragement, gave instruction, berated, directed, and chided, all without breaking a stride. If her behavior did not run entirely counter to her comments about professional disinterest, he would have been quietly impressed. Finally, they arrived at a dressing room door. Cassandra held up a hand. These rooms are deeply intimate, Sergeant, she said. I hope I can count on you to behave like a gentleman. Moore nodded, and she pushed open the door. Beyond was a long, narrow room. The ceiling was uncomfortably low, and the whole chamber seethed with activity. Dressing tables crowded the long walls, their mirrors multiplying the appearance of chaos tenfold. A dozen or more women, all in various stages of dress, flocked around the dressers, applying makeup, fiddling with costumes, and a hundred other tasks required before a performance. They chatted and laughed, jibed and rebutted, and shouted compliments and insults with equal gusto. A handful looked up and nodded a greeting to Cassandra as she opened the door, but they paid the guild sergeant no mind. Martina, Charlotte, Cassandra called out. This is Sergeant Moore. He is here to ask you about Elaine. You will answer his questions and offer any assistance he requires, is that clear? Two women detached from the group and stepped forward. They wore elaborate dresses, cut high at the front hem to expose their stockinged legs and corseted at the top, leaving their arms free. Dancers, thought Moore. It was obvious now that Cassandra knew the dead girl and was feigning ignorance. But why? She had asked a lot of questions of her own, none of which Moore had answered. Was she conducting her own investigation? The women of the Star Theatre famously took care of their own. Perhaps some sort of revenge was being planned. Moore flipped open his notebook. Now then, he said. When did either of you last see Ms. Sutcliffe? Krauss watched, amused, as the foreman straightened the pile of paperwork on his desk for the fifth time since she had arrived. As far as she could tell, the paper had not moved during her time in the office, but this man, Zahn, felt some compulsion to fidget with it. You like order, don't you, Mr. Zahn? She asked. Zahn remained focused on his ceaseless task. I do, he said. I find it quite useful given my position here. The whole office was one great testament to regulation. 
the piles of paperwork, when not being fussed with, were all perfectly aligned with the edges of the desk. The filing cabinets behind her were equidistant to one another and the walls of the office. Krauss wagered that if she were to check, the desk itself would be in the exact centre of the room. She stood up and began to pace. Zahn stared at her, quite alarmed. How long have you held the position of foreman, Mr. Zahn? She asked. Six years, he replied crisply. And before that? I was administrator for Site 247 up near Slate Ridge. I say, what has this got to do with anything? I thought you said you were looking for a missing woman. Krauss strode around the desk, passing behind the foreman. He craned his neck, trying to keep her in view. Sweat had begun to form on his forehead. Oh no, Mr. Zahn, she said. We have the woman. It's her killer we're after. Zahn swallowed hard, his hands reaching instinctively for his high collar. A killer? Why are you asking me questions? I don't know anything about a dead woman. Why would I? Well, that remains to be seen, doesn't it? Can you account for your whereabouts last night? Certainly, I was here until 9.30 when my shift finished. I took supper at the Grindstone. It's a tavern hereabouts, and then I walked home and was in bed by 11. Krauss circled around in front of Zahn again, dragging her fingertips along the desk's edge. He twitched and began fussing with the paperwork again. I see, and can anyone vouch for you? Corroborate your story? Yes, I should think so he said, still straightening the papers. There's a night shift supervisor and the staff at the Grindstone. Have you ever visited the Star Theatre? Zahn fumbled with the papers, spilling them across the floor. In his haste to catch them, he bumped the desk, dislodging yet more and causing a cascade of crisp white rectangles to escape. Oh, dear me, he exclaimed, rushing out to begin tidying up. Krauss knelt down beside him. Pressing her hands down on the papers, Zahn was trying desperately to collect. The trio of witchling stalkers loomed behind her, their glimmering silver eyes fixed on the foreman. Answer the question, Mr. Zahn. She hissed at him. What? He stammered. What question? The Star Theatre. Have you ever been there? Maybe for a show or to visit someone, perhaps? I might have. Zahn was sweating profusely now his face turning red. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. What was? demanded Krauss. Please let go of the paper. I need to tidy up. Answer me. All right, yes, I have been there. He whined, pressing at his collar again. Once, a few months ago. It was one of the other supervisor's birthdays and we all went. I don't remember much. I think I drank too much. It's all a bit of a blur. Now please let go. Krauss released the spilled paperwork and stood up. She strode to the office door and paused. One final question, Mr. Zahn. Do you share this office with anyone? Another supervisor or colleague? Zahn looked up at her as he shuffled the paperwork together, his face a puzzle of worry. No, he said sharply. Thank you. Don't get up. I'll see myself out. Moore sucked his teeth as he considered all the women had told him. Something did not add up. So, he said, besides her being a dancer and having no arguments or rivalries with any of the other women, is there anything else you can tell me? No, sir, said Martina. Not really, sir. 
once more looked around him. The dressing room was still a hive of frantic activity. He noticed many of the women had received deliveries of flowers, chocolates, and other affectionate gifts. The attached cards professed their undying devotion to the named woman, most in very badly spelled and awfully written poetry. It seemed the life of showgirl brought with it a certain level of romantic baggage. The women giggled to one another every time another bouquet or box arrived and spoke in whispers while looking at the accompanying cards. He spied a dressing table not far down the room that stood out from the rest. The flowers crowding the tabletop were on their last legs. Several of them had wilted or died completely. A tube of lipstick had been left out and had dried to a twig-like nub. Is that Elaine's dresser? He asked. Charlotte giggled. Oh no, sir. Elaine had hardly been here for a month. You have to earn a dresser. That there is Serena's, or at least it was. It'll be mine if she doesn't come back soon. She's missing. I don't know if you'd say missing, replied Martina. She's not been seen in a while. But she might have run off with her fancy man or found herself a rich patron to look after her. I think she's just laying low for a while, said Charlotte. She took her mannequin with her. Moore stepped closer to the table. It was obvious no one had used it for some time. The flowers bore no cards. Why do you say that? asked Moore. Well, one of her gentlemen admirers was having a hard time taking no for an answer, if you catch my meaning, sir. Kept turning up to her shows and waiting at the stage door with those great big bunches of flowers you see there, sir. She told him to get lost, but he wasn't having none of it. Kept saying he loved her and they should be together. Quite pathetic, really. And did this persistent devotee have a name? Oh, yes, sir, replied Martina. Hold on a moment, I'm sure I have one of his cards here somewhere. The showgirl began to rummage through the clutter on her dresser. How long has she been missing? Charlotte considered the question for a moment. I'd say a week or two, sir. A sickly feeling began to crawl up Moore's spine. Three dead showgirls in two weeks, and now evidence of a fourth missing, he thought. Somewhere out there was another body. Here it is, announced Martina, brandishing a small white card. Mr. Eric Zahn. Moore plucked the card from her outstretched hand and pushed for the exit. Malifaux's twin moons shone down from the firmament, casting long shadows across the alley where Sergeant Moore and witch hunter Krauss crouched. Krauss's three witchling stalkers stood a short distance back. You're sure? asked Krauss. I am, replied Moore. I have the card right here. Eric Zahn, shift foreman, Kessler's processing plant industrial zone. I knew there was something twitchy about him, the way he panicked when I mentioned the star and that ridiculous collar he was wearing. You're using poor fashion sense as evidence now. My dear Helena, whatever did I see in you? If I remember correctly, it was more than just my brilliant mind and peerless swordsmanship. Moore was glad the darkness hid his face. Those days are long gone, Helena. You made sure of that. Krauss turned to look at him. Here am I. Quiet. He hissed. Someone's coming out. Across from them, the door to the grindstone tavern opened. Soft yellow light and the sound of merrymaking spilled from the portal as Eric Zahn stepped out. 
The foreman glanced furtively up and down the road before setting off at a trot towards the river. That's him, said Krauss. Come on. The pair slipped from the alley and stole down the cobbles behind Zahn. Make sure you keep those things of yours quiet, he whispered. If Zahn is our man, we don't want him getting spooked. You just stay on Zahn, said Krauss irritably. Let me worry about the stalkers. Krauss let Moore pull ahead. She raised one hand to the witchlings behind her and the three of them slowed to a walk. They followed Zahn like that for twenty minutes, until he ducked inside a small warehouse on the riverfront. Moore waited for Krauss to catch up, before crossing to the warehouse and sneaking inside. The warehouse was poorly lit. A dozen or so large crates blocked most of the floor space. Unwilling to simply stumble upon Zahn in the dark, Krauss and Moore ascended a nearby ladder to a mezzanine overlooking the ground floor. Krauss's stalkers waited silently by the door. Beneath them, the guild agents saw a workshop of sorts. A tall, covered workbench stood in a pool of sickly yellow light. Across from it, a mannequin, like those from the theatre, hung on a tall frame. Chains looped under its arms and around its waist, suspending it above the ground. The mannequin was dressed like a showgirl. A vibrant skirt and frilled corset top were draped awkwardly across its frame, and someone had inexpertly started to draw what appeared to be a female face on its head. Moore shivered. What the bloody hell is going on? Krauss shushed him, pointing down to where Zahn had emerged. Zahn had shed his overcoat and suit jacket. He was carrying a glowing soulstone carefully toward the mannequin. Soon, Serena, my love. He cooed. I have found the perfect dancer for you. Her talent is equal to yours, and I know together you shall be greater still. Zahn moved behind the mannequin, and the guild agents heard him working on some sort of device. Once you are complete again, we can be together. But it has to be perfect. The perfect voice, the perfect grace, the perfect body, and the perfect face. He doesn't know what he's doing, whispered Krauss. He's like a child playing pretend. This ends now. She slid into a crouch, carefully drawing the greatsword from her back. Moore heard her muttering under her breath, and his teeth began to grind. Krauss had started moving too late. Zahn finished his work, and something clicked loudly. The mannequin twitched. Zahn stepped out in front of it, his upturned face a picture of ecstasy. Moore heard the witchlings move along the crates beneath him. He loosened the pistol at his hip. This would only end in bloodshed, he was sure of it. The mannequin twitched again. It shuddered against its bindings, causing the chains to rattle and clank. Krauss eased out from her hiding place and lowered herself slowly onto the ground floor. Moore watched horror-struck as the mannequin's convulsions became more violent. It thrashed and twisted in the chains, the metal shrieking and groaning as the automaton strained against them. Zahn backed away, suddenly unsure. By order of the witch-hunters, you will cease this heinous crime and surrender to me, bellowed Kraus as she strode from the shadows. Her witchlings slithered forward behind her, a sinister bodyguard. Zahn spun round to face her, terrified. Behind him, the mannequin arched its back and howled. 
It was a sound like no other, a scream of rage and pain, of unearthly torment and of maddened wrath. It shrieked in four voices, each separate in sound but united in anguish. Moore's bowels turned to water at that horrible sound. Even Krauss faltered, her usual steely resolve wavering in the face of such woe. The chains holding the mannequin finally gave way, and the terrible creature dropped to the floor. Still moaning and whimpering in its hideous voices, it turned its sightless eyes on Zahn and took a jerking step forward. Krauss crossed the room in a heartbeat, raising her sword overhead. She brought it down in a devastating diagonal slash. The mannequin swayed backwards with preternatural grace, and the ruined blade sliced past. Moore leapt into action, drawing his pistol and dropping from the mezzanine. Zahn gave an inarticulate screech and rushed at Krauss. The witch hunter planted her left foot and swung a spinning kick into the oncoming man. Her foot caught him full in the shoulder, hurling him sideways into the workbench. With her attention momentarily focused on Zahn, the mannequin snuck past her defences. Its clawing fingers raked the side of her face and blood burst from her scratched eye, sending her staggering away. The witchlings loped forward to defend their mistress, tongues of blue flame licking up their naked blades. Moore rushed from the crates towards the fallen body of Zahn. The first stalker came at the mannequin low, its rune sword slashing at the thing's legs. It leapt artistically over the flaming blade, catching the stalker with one hand as it landed. In one fluid motion, it yanked the stunted creature from its feet and slammed it into the ground with bone-crushing force. The second stalker rushed in from the flank, aiming to transfix the mannequin on its sword. The mannequin pirouetted aside, driving its fingers deep into the witchling's face. It shuddered, held there momentarily by its killer's outstretched hand. The crimson fingers snapped backwards just in time to catch the third stalker's arcing blade. The mannequin's arm burst apart in a shower of wood and metal, hungry flames sliding across its chest and face. With a speed beyond sight, the mannequin brought its other hand across in an open-palmed slap. The sound of bone shattering echoed across the warehouse, and the final stalker fell. Moore reached Zahn and started to drag him to his feet. The man was barely lucid, muttering about love and eternity and perfection. Moore ignored him, twisting Zahn's arms behind his back while he fumbled for his manacles. Krauss circled the mannequin, her greatsword spinning in one hand. Blackened, burnt, and dismembered, the mannequin shuddered toward her. Krauss whispered words of power, blowing them softly onto her blade. The runes carved into the metal glowed red, and a single finger of flame curled along its length. She raised the sword as a mannequin came at her. They met in a storm of violence. Krauss slashed and cut, but the mannequin seemed to slide away from every strike. In return, it lashed out at her with blinding speed. It drove its fingers for Krauss's eyes. She ducked aside and countered with an upward slice at its groin. The mannequin hopped backwards before diving forward again with a leaping kick. Krauss saw it too late, the wooden foot smashing into her jaw, sending her flailing into a crate. In an instant, the mannequin leapt into the air, intending to crush the life out of the downed witch hunter. 
Desperately, Krauss brought her sword up, spearing her attacker through the chest. Zahn screamed again, thrashing against his bonds. Moore silenced him with the butt of his pistol. Flames burst around the mannequin, and it howled piteously. Krauss's blade was wedged deep in its body, but still the thing came on. It shrieked and screeched in its horrible quadruple voice, its one good hand straining to reach Krauss. By inches it began to slide down the blade, its scorched fingertips just scratching at Krauss's face. Moore lifted his arm. The pistol in his fist spoke. The mannequin's head came apart like a dropped egg. Finally, it stopped thrashing. Moore watched as a squad of guardsmen bundled the still-sobbing Zahn into the back of a wagon. Quite a night, eh, Sarge? said one of the guardsmen. What was it all about, anyway? He killed the girl he obsessed over and tried to rebuild her using other girls' souls to make her more perfect, replied Moore matter-of-factly. It wasn't about anything, it was just madness. The guardsman whistled. Crazy the things love will make you do. You ever fallen in love, Sarge? Moore looked across at Krauss as she oversaw the prisoner transport. She nodded at him and smiled. No, said Moore finally, but I might have stepped in it once. Moore shook his head. This was no act of love. That's it for another installment of The Weird Chronicles. Join us next time for more tales of action and adventure.